We saw last week in general, under the heading of general revelation, that God has given us the works of creation, uh, the works of providence. We, we see his handiwork everywhere. And, in, and then we talked about the light of nature, basically man's ability to reason, man's capacity to understand the fact of, of a God, um, the fact that there is a God that has made him that he owes worship to, according to Romans 1 and other places. Um, but we said that that general revelation is insufficient, right? There's, there's not enough there as we look off into the cosmos to be saved. There's enough there to condemn. Paul says that man is without excuse because of what has been seen in creation. But it's not enough to understand uh, the fact of the cross, the mercy of God in the Son to save sinners. We need for that special revelation. And so we got into that need of special revelation. And the, the confession opens with those important words that the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And so we said the, the confession, or the, excuse me, the Bible is the rule or the standard, the norm. And it is the only it is unique in this regard. It is the only sufficient rule. It is the only certain rule. And it is the only infallible rule or standard when it comes to saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. So what do we need to know about God to be saved and to faithfully live as a Christian? It's all in the Bible. Everything's there that we need. Um, we talked about the fact of the the canon of Scripture, basically what books are in and what books are out. And the 66 books are listed in the Confession. You can read those. We won't read that list. Um, it's the Bible as we know it, the Protestant Bible. Um, and it, then it, it makes it clear that the Apocrypha, as you may have heard of other books that different traditions claim to be Scripture, we saw, I think I had on there, I don't have last week's handout, but Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox both have a different canon than we do, a different rule, basically a different number of books that they would say are Holy Scripture. But we would say it's the 66 books that have always been recognized. Even the Jews didn't recognize the Apocrypha as, as Holy Writ. Um, that was last week, and so we come to paragraph 4. We spent a lot of time on paragraph 1 because it's foundational. We come today to paragraph 4. So we're on, we're on paragraph 4. Paragraph 4, chapter 1 of the Confession. Let me just read that. The first section here is the authority of the Bible, the authority. That's paragraphs 4 and 5. I, I think you have, you have the outline here on the first page of your handout. It says, The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself. The author thereof, Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. Two passages that we want to look at here in the Bible. The first one is 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 is a very, very interesting text. Um, if we go up just a bit from 19 and start at 16, we read there 2 Peter chapter 1 and 16. 
For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, what event is he talking about? Yes, the, the, the transfiguration of, of Christ, where they were on the mountain, and Moses and Elijah appear, and Jesus unveils, in some regard, his glory, transfigured before their, their eyes. But listen to what he says. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. I believe it's the, the NASB that says we have a more sure word in the Bible to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So Peter says we were there and we saw the glory of Jesus shining in his face, but we have a more certain word here in the Bible. That's fascinating to, to think about. Um, I, I, you know, my, my, my natural instinct is to say, if I would have seen that, if I could just see Jesus, just a miracle, let me see that, and it's over, right? I'll never, I'll never lack assurance forever. But he says, no, we saw him transfigured before our eyes, but we have a more sure and certain word here in this prophetic writing. Knowing, verse 20, this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter is saying very clearly that, that this is not a man-made book, right? That, that all of Scripture is, yes, there were men that were penmen, but it's the inspired word of God. Men are carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is how we understand the doctrine of inspiration. It's not a... It's not a dictation theory where you just sort of go in a trance or you're hearing a voice and you just start transcribing what God said. But, but Paul picks up his pen and he writes a letter to Timothy. But he is, the Spirit of God is using him in such a way that the words that God wants on the page are there, but they are, they are there through the human agency of Paul. So Paul writes and he's thinking about his past life and all that he's experienced, just like you and I would, everything that we know and are comes to bear when we write or think about something. And Paul is, 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 is relating to his own experiences. And yet the Holy Spirit is supernaturally leading him to write words that are the inspired words of God. And then the other text is 2 Timothy 3, well-known passage there. Second Timothy three, uh, fourteen. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Timothy has been acquainted with the sacred writings from birth. What, what are these sacred writings that Paul's talking about? 
The Old Testament? Yes. The Hebrew Scriptures? Uh, the, the, the Gospels would not have been penned yet, right? There was no Pauline epistles, no letters from Paul. But he says, those writings, the Old Testament, is able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That is, the Jew, before Christ, could come to faith in the Messiah through the Old Covenant, right? Through the Old Testament. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So here, again, Paul now asserts that, that all of the Bible is theonistah, is breathed out by God. God-breathed or inspired. Inspired is sort of the technical theological word. The ESV translates that word very literally in saying God-breathed. It's breath and God that are put together. And so the scriptures are breathed out by God. They are the very words of God. And I know this is not new territory, hopefully, for us, but... Um, all that to say, there's a simple argument that the confession is asserting here. God has absolute authority. Amen? The Bible is God's word. Amen? Thus, the Bible has the same authority as the Lord. It carries divine authority because it's his word. Um, the Bible doesn't derive its authority from anywhere else. It has authority simply because it is the word of God. Now, there's a fundamental distinction that I think is worth pointing out here at this time. And it's a distinction between Roman Catholicism and Protestants. We are Protestants. Maybe that's familiar to you. But there was a time in my life where I was at a place and I needed a church. And there was church services that were offered. And I'm, I'm a Christian. I, that's what I tell myself, right? So I'm going to go to Christian service and I'm looking at this calendar of events, and I see Catholic, and that's not me, and Muslim, and that's certainly not me, and I see Protestant, and I see Church of Christ. I have no idea what a Protestant is, but I worship Christ, so I'm going to go to the Church of Christ. Um, I didn't realize that was not, that's not, a, that's not what I believe. Now, they're Christian, well, they have Christian beliefs, but they're kind of different in some ways. Um, they have some unique things, but we are Protestants, right? We are heirs of the Reformation, when men protested the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. And so the Roman Catholics would say that it is the church that created the word. They would see the church having the authority, and the church is the source of the word. So the word derives its authority from the church, because the church is the, one that, the ones that wrote the word. Now, they would still believe in inspiration, but they would see the church having this role of authority, and the church birthing the word, if you will. Protestants came and said, no, you have it backwards. It is the word that has created the church. God spoke, gave his revelation. Men believe that, that word, and the church is birthed from the word. And so the, the word has authority, as the confession says, depending not upon the testimony of any man or any church, but wholly upon God. So because you say the Bible has authority doesn't give it its authority. Because the church says the Bible has authority doesn't necessarily give it that authority. It has authority because it is the words of God himself. You see the distinction there? And so that first paragraph is basically why. It's asking the question, why does the Bible have authority? The Bible has authority 
<laughs> the Bible has authority because it is the word of God. That, so that's sort of the objective statement. It has authority because it's God's word. And God has authority. The second paragraph is, is what I think Sam Waldron calls the proof of that authority. And this might be a little bit more subjective. And how do we know? How, how do we know that? How do we experience that? Now, our subjective understanding doesn't give the Bible authority, but still, how do we know the Bible has authority? What are some ways that we understand that it carries authority? And so let's look then at paragraph 5, if you have your confession. If not, there's some in the back. Chapter 1, paragraph 5. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to a high in reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole. Dustin's been driving this into us the last few weeks very helpfully. Um, the scope of the whole Bible, which is to give all glory to God. The full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So how do we know the Bible has authority? How do we see that? Where, do we, where might we understand that? The first thing that I want to say here is that the Bible is self-authenticating. It is self-authenticating. It asserts in and of itself that it carries authority. It doesn't appeal to anything. It just sort of assumes this is God's word and you are to believe it. You are to obey it. You are to do what it says. You are to believe its doctrines. You are to bow or face the consequences. As Piper says, you will bow or you will burn. Um, but that's, that's the reality of it, right? The Bible, the Bible just says, this is the word of God. Um, Sam Waldron says it like this. The scriptures in and of themselves demand to be believed and oblige all who hear them to believe. So it, it doesn't give. Now, we read a couple of passages where the Bible is asserting itself to have authority and to be divine. But it doesn't give these long treatises explaining why you should believe its authenticity. It simply says, in the beginning, God. And it asserts that here is truth from the very beginning of creation, and you are to believe it, take it as it is. So it's self-authenticating. It simply asserts that it is divine and to be believed. But the confession here gave at least six types of internal evidences that we might see in the Bible that give it authority, that, that, that communicate to us. This is not where the authority comes from, but that we reasons why we would see it to be the word of God. Uh, the first one was the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the holy scriptures. So should the church make a big deal about the word of God? Certainly, right? We should, we should tell people this is God's word. We should tell people it has authority. We should communicate that. That should be a, a, an important piece of doctrine. I mean, it's the first chapter in the confession. Um, 
that doesn't give it the authority, but we ought to, and, and there should be a high esteem, and that's one thing that might point to us, this is, this is God's word. Um, the heavenliness of the matter, the Bible has just a unique, spiritual, godly character to it. The efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the Bible is incredibly unified. I know people want to say that the Bible's filled with contradictions. Usually, if you just say, show me, that conversation's over, right? They've heard that. They saw a meme somewhere. Someone said the Bible has contradictions. They, like, they very likely don't have any, any. And if they do, maybe they listen to Bart Ehrman or something, and they have some supposed contradictions. Usually, they're foolish and you know, easily refuted. Certainly, there's things in the Bible that we have to reconcile and that we have to deal with, um, but... It really, you see the, the, the beautiful unity as this document, this, this book has been written over a period of some 1,500 years, but there, it's so cohesive. Um, the scope of the whole. You see the, you see the reality that the whole Bible is seeking to give glory to God, to lift up the name of this God that we serve. But, <laughs> but... It said something else there, that the full discovery, or, or excuse me, one more there, the full discovery it makes of man's only way of salvation. And it adds, many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections. So all of these things, these internal evidences that you would say, man, this doesn't feel like any other book. This feels like a divine book. This feels like it is the word of God, it is unique, it is majestic, it is glorious, it is cohesive, it, it is united. It points to all this wonderful, incredible doctrine, this heavenly nature of, of the words. Yet, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So while there are many internal evidences to the authority of the Bible, we need the work of the Spirit to have true and full assurance that it is the Word of God. And uh, Waldron, in his commentary, addresses the question that someone might, might posit to say, well, if the Bible is self-authenticating and it's so obvious that it's the Word, then why do men need the inward work of the Holy Spirit? Isn't that a contradiction? You're saying that it authenticates itself, and then you're saying that, well, you actually need the Holy Spirit to really understand this. And he gives a one-word answer. Sin. Right? sin. Sin of man's heart. The noetic effects of sin on the mind. Our minds are corrupted. Human depravity has perverted man's mind and intellect. His desire and will is corrupted. Thus, we are incapable of dealing with the Bible on its own terms and understanding it as it comes to us without sin getting in the way. And so the confession posits that the Holy Spirit is necessary for us to fully realize that the Bible is the Word of God. And you see this across the country. I mentioned, I mentioned the name Bart Ehrman. Maybe that's a name that's familiar to you, maybe not. Um, yeah, not, not someone I recommend reading, at least not with much discernment. Um, but he was a professing Christian at one point. He's, we would call him now an apostate.
but he basically makes his living on questioning the, the authenticity of the Bible, um, trying to poke holes in the reliability of the New Testament. Um, he's something of an apologist for the dark side, if you will, for the enemy. I mean, really. Um, but he, he spends his life studying the Bible. You know, he spends his life in the text of Scripture. Now, he's trying to poke holes in it, but you have many men in many institutions today that, that they study the Bible, but they, they, they look at it like any other historic religious text. You know, like you might read some classic work. Um, it's, it's a man-made document. And so they read the Bible, and they see all of this that we've just discussed, but they see it with veiled eyes. They don't, they don't see Christ as they should there. And so we need the Spirit, ultimately, to understand these things. Paragraph 6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered, here's this language again, by the light of nature, human reason, sanctified wisdom, we might say, and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. All right, so there's something in the beginning that qualifies what the Bible is sufficient for. We talked some about this Last week, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for what? What do we see there? His own glory, man's salvation, faith and life. Right. I'm reading, I think, from the old the old version um, is either necessary is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Bible. And so it's all there. The scripture is perfect in this, in this regard. We have everything that we need, as it's been said, for life and godliness. So they made two statements there. I, I don't have the Westminster in front of me, but I mentioned last week that this is something the Baptists changed a bit, that they tweaked. Um, that first statement expressly set down is basically things that are directly and clearly there stated. As a matter of fact. Um, but secondly, it talked about things that are necessarily contained. And those are principles or implications from the text. Applications that we might make. One example that we might say there is that we believe that the Bible teaches that baptism should precede one's partaking of the Lord's Supper. That there's a logical flow that we would deduce from the Bible, there's not a black and white proof text that says you have to do that, 
But as we consider the logic of baptism being the door to the church and the table being a seat at the family meal, if you will, there's a flow there. Or the fact that churches should practice church membership. Right? Some would argue that that's not a biblical concept, certainly. Um, but that's a, a, a something that's necessarily contained when we look at the whole testimony of the Bible and try to understand what God is, is communicating. Um, this is what, I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name, Simon Wartanian. He has a, a, a pretty helpful two-volume commentary on the confession. I don't think it's one I brought out. I don't think I showed that one. Um, he's a layman, and I don't mean that as an insult. That's the title of his, of his work, is a layman's systematic and biblical exposition of the 1689 London Confession. It's a, it's a serious, it's probably about that thick, two volumes, big. Um, but he says that this about the sufficiency of the Bible. The sufficiency of Scripture is defined as Scripture containing everything necessary that God wanted us to know. Is there more to be known than what's in the text? Clearly there is. Um, all that God wanted us to know about salvation, faith, and the walk of obedience. Whatever God had deemed necessary for his people to know, he has written for our benefit in Scripture. So we don't need, as the confession said, we don't need extra revelations, new revelations. We're not waiting for 3 Corinthians, right, or some, some new book to be written Another more chapters of the book of Acts or whatever. Um, we don't need more. God has given us a perfect word. We have all there that we need. And we see this. We just read in 2 Timothy 3, 16, that all scriptures breathe out by, by God. And thus all scripture then is profitable and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete or perfect, another translation says, thoroughly or equipped for every good work or thoroughly furnished. That is, we have all that we need for every good work that God would set before us. We don't need another manual. We don't need another book. That doesn't mean that other books are not helpful insofar as they're helping us understand the Bible and making an application, um, but we don't need more words from God. We're not waiting for new revelation. We're not, we're not at any lack when someone might say, I, don't, I can't read a book. I want God to speak to me. God has. He's spoken to us in the text. And he says, this word is sufficient for you. And so we have then a sufficient tool for ministry here in the Bible. Everything that Timothy would need. Set out to do, whether it's preach, teach, disciple, evangelize, rebuke, exhort, baptize, administer the table, counsel someone. He has a sufficient tool here in the word. We also then have a sufficient tool to live the Christian life. God's word is sufficient for our parenting, for our marriages. Um, does the Bible communicate how you can be a faithful plumber? It does. Yes, I got you there. It doesn't tell you how to do the job. It was a trick question. It doesn't tell you how to do the job. It doesn't tell you what a monkey wrench is, if that's even a thing. Um, but it does. It does tell you how to be a faithful whatever you are, right? How can I be a godly, consistent man in my vocation, right? The Bible tells us that. We don't, we don't need to look elsewhere. 
We're not waiting for, for some extra word from the Lord. We have it all here. The Bible is a, is a perfect text given, given to us. Does that mean then that we have a chapter and verse for everything? That anything that we might want to ask about under those categories, that there's going to be a, a, a one singular, pointed out, perfect go-to verse for every head of doctrine, every question that, that we might ask? And the, que- the answer to that is certainly is no. Right? As the confession says, we have all that we need there. Everything is there for salvation and the life of faith that is either expressly laid down or there through necessary inference. Um, what are we saying there? What is that necessary inference language or necessarily contained, excuse me, necessarily contained. Um, it means that when we read any part of the Bible, we need to understand it in the context of the whole. That there's not a single text in Scripture that stands on its own. And so we always interpret the Bible in light of the rest of the Bible. And the entire Scripture comes to bear on any doctrine that we might have. So if we read some text and it seems to say something confusing or something that goes against something that the church teaches, we need to understand that text in its context, right? In the, in the sentence that it's in, in the paragraph that it's in, in the genre of writing that it's in, in the covenant that it's in, in the time period. We need to understand all of those things and bring all of God's word to bear on any head of doctrine. One example is... Paul's discussion on justification in Romans chapter 4. And so what Paul does there is he cites Genesis 15 with Abraham's covenantal account. He cites Genesis 17 of the Abrahamic covenant. He cites Psalm 32, David talking about the forgiveness of sin. And he he takes all of this data and he makes a systematic conclusion. We have been justified by faith. He takes all of that information and makes this statement, right? He's synthesizing the text of the Bible. We see this all over the place, right? And so, uh, in other words, not being able to cite a chapter in verse does not mean that something isn't in the Bible. Um, again, the easiest, the easiest example here is the doctrine of the Trinity. If someone says to you... Uh, the Trinity is not biblical. Show me a verse that proves that it is. Is there a single verse that you can go to to prove the Trinity in the Bible? What's that? You know, honey? The, the comma? You have a King James, you might go to you know First John, but there's not, right? We have to synthesize the data. What's that? Sure, that's a, that's a wonderful example, um, but you can poke holes in that, right? You don't, you, you, there's many things you could say. Jesus is not God, you could say, because he's a man, and the, the, the father just says, he's my son, right? And so you, there's a whole doctrine of adoptionism, that Jesus is adopted by the father. He's a chosen, exalted man. Um, so that's, a, that's one text that we could go to, but you can't make a whole theology of the Trinity on that one example. Right, I mean, because there's there's more to be said. What is this the spirit? Here comes the spirit. What, you know, there's there's 
That's a great text. It's one of the best, closest ones. Dustin? Yeah, so um, we're not saying that we play fast and loose with the text, but we're also saying we're not biblicist, meaning that if there's not a black and white clear verse that explains something, then it can't be found in the Bible. Because if that's the case, there's all sorts of stuff that we're going to start, we have to throw away. Um, it's there, but it's there. Uh, again, I want to get the, that expression right. It's necessarily contained as we synthesize texts of Scripture and put them together. Um, so we don't need a chapter and verse for everything. That's not how doctrines are formulated. As Paul takes multiple passages, lumps them together. Or if you go to Romans chapter 3, and Paul takes like three to five texts about man's depravity. His throat is an open grave. He takes all these psalms and he sort of lumps them together and he puts together this picture of man's depravity. There's no fear of God before their eyes. He sort of synthesizes it with that statement. Um, the confession then made, a, made a, an interesting statement. It said that some things are ordered according to the light of nature. And it said even things like the worship of God and the government of the church. What exactly is that talking about? Um, it's talking about, it said things that are common. Let me read it again. There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. All they're saying is God doesn't tell us everything that we are to do. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us is, should there be a pulpit, should we meet inside or outside, should we meet in the morning or the evening, should we have a microphone, should we have lighting we do these things according to common human actions and societies. So would it be appropriate in our culture to say, hey, we've moved the, the morning worship time to 3 a.m. See you there. I don't think anyone would show up, right? In our culture, that would be extremely not appropriate, right? Would it be unbiblical? Would it be unfaithful to have the service that early? No. Um, but it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't make sense. Right? So we do many things in the church that are not, that are not the, the central elements of worship. We do them according to sanctified wisdom, if you will, the light, the light of nature, according to common human prudence. Number five on there, paragraph seven, is the clarity then of Scripture, or the perspicuity is the fancy word. Paragraph 7, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation, are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other, that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of ordinary means, may attain to a sufficient understanding of of them. So basically what they're saying, and I have this, these three points that I believe these are from Sam Waldron. Firstly, the scriptures are clear in that the things that need to be known can be known. Now, you don't have to have a PhD to open up the Bible and understand it. Um, but secondly, they are not equally clear in all parts. There's some confusing stuff in, in the Bible. And we might quote, um, let me just quote it to you. Uh, Peter's words 
If you've ever been reading Paul, and you're like, man, Paul, I'm trying to follow your argument here, but it's, it's deep. It's weighty. Peter sympathizes with you. 2 Peter 3.16, or 15, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Very important text there that Peter in his life recognizes Paul's writing to be divine scripture. That's a very important piece of our understanding of the Bible and how these men saw, even at that time, how, how Peter understood Paul's writings. He considers them scripture. But he says they're hard to understand. And so the Bible is not equally cl cl clear <coughs> everywhere. And it's not equally clear to all people. Different people are going to have different understandings, different ability, different capacity, different time to put in. Yet, what is necessary for you to know to be saved, you can understand in the Bible. A normal person that has the ability to read can understand how I be saved and how I live faithfully before God. That's basically all they're trying, all they're, all they're trying to say there. Um, and they're fighting against a lot of this, you know, they're fighting against the Roman Catholic Church. So you don't need a priest to interpret the Bible for you. You don't necessarily need the church. I mean, the church, in the sense of the preaching of the word, is the Bible being expounded for God's people. But it's not as if you can't, you know, Johnny Christian, go home and open up the text and be edified and come to saving faith through just reading the word. We want to we be very clear that anyone can come to saving faith reading the Bible on their own. It doesn't need to be, come through the, the interpretation of some elevated man. Bless you. And then finally, the last three paragraphs there, um, we're calling the use of the scripture. And I think this is how B.B. Warfield breaks this section down. Um, these will just be brief with Paragraph 8, paragraph 8 is a bit long. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations. It was the common tongue of the world, similarly to how English is sort of the common business language across the globe today. Those two, the Hebrew and the Greek, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. But because these original tongues, those languages are not known to all the people of God who have a right unto and interest in the scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar tongue, the common tongue of every nation or language of every nation, unto which they come that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. So there's a lot there. Um, but firstly, 
they assert that the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek, right? Small portion in Aramaic, um, but by and large, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament is written in Greek, and those original writings are immediately inspired by God. They are inspired by the Lord. Um, is this Bible inspired? Now we're getting into some dangerous territory. What's he going to say? Is the ESV an inspired text? It is insofar as it rightly interprets the original writings, right? If I got a Greek manuscript, got a hold of one, and I interpreted it, and I translated it for you, and I don't read Greek, so it'd be a mess, and I have my little Strong's Concordance, and I'm doing my thing on Lagos, and I say, here you go. This is an infallible, inspired word of God. Would that, my translation, be the word of God? Where I got it right, it would be inspired, but where I got it wrong, it would, it would not be, right? So the Hebrew and Greek immediately are inspired. Are the copies inspired? Yes, insofar as they rightly copy the original writings, right? So we have what are called the, the autographs or the autographa, and those are the writings that were originally penned by the apostles or by their secretaries. Paul doesn't actually write his letters. Usually he has an amanuensis or whatever. He has a secretary. You see at some point he says, you see how I'm writing in big letters in my own hand? He grabs the quill, if you will, and he starts saying hello to them. They have someone that would, they would, dictate, they would dictate to someone. Still his words. Um, but those are lost. Right? We don't have the very first copy of Romans. Those are all lost in history. Um, there was no copiers at that time. There's no printing press. You couldn't do what we like to do when you have some document, you pull out your phone and you just take a picture, boom, and there's the original, right? That thing would have been tore up pretty quickly, the very first copy. Um, but they were, they were meticulous in their copying of copies of the manuscripts. And so we have some 5,000 copies, manuscripts of the New Testament some of those are as small as a verse or a few words. Some of those are all of books. Some of those are all of the New Testament um, that point us to the fact, as the confession says, that God has kept his word pure. He has preserved it for us, not in one single manuscript, but in all of the preponderance of the evidence that we have. And so the, the autographs are inspired, are immediately inspired um, kept pure by God, but the confession asserts the necessity of translation, that the people of God are commanded to read the word. Can you read, the, can you read a massive Hebrew scroll? It's beautiful, right? You see it in a museum. You see a picture of it. It looks wonderful. Not many people can read that thing, right? Um, so we need the Bible in our own language. And so they assert that it ought to be translated in the vulgar tongue. Vulgar just meaning common, not the way we would use Paragraph 9 is on the interpretation of Scripture. This is a helpful paragraph um, that we don't really have time to think about too much. But number 9, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. So a couple rules here. The first is that the Holy Spirit is the only infallible interpreter of the Bible. Um, I, I like this, this, this thought. It's sort of simple. 
This is a quote from Richard Barcelos, but when you really get it in your bones, I think it's profound. He says, the best interpreter of the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit speaking to us in the New. Now, I know that seems strange, or, or, or excuse me, I know that seems obvious, but many men deny this reality. John MacArthur denies this reality that, that the New Testament ought to have priority over the Old. Now, the New Testament doesn't erase the Old Testament, but just like you would read any book, when the author, in, towards the end of the book, gives you clarity for stuff that happened in the beginning, then you're not going to tell him he can't do that or he's contradicting himself. No, he's, he's giving more light. He's giving more light. And so we have more revelation, as we were talking about, I think it was in Sunday school this past week, that, that those in the Old Covenant had enough to be saved, but they had very little compared to what we have now in Jesus Christ. And so as the Holy Spirit comments on the old in the new, we have an infallible commentary on the Bible. We have God's word on God's word, and that's a wonderful blessing. So he shines light on earlier texts to help us interpret those and to see them rightly. And the second rule there, I think you ladies talked about it a few months now back with the R.C. Sproul book, is the analogy of Scripture. The analogy of Scripture, and that is that... um, the Bible interprets itself. We take the less clear texts and we understand them in light of the more clear text, if you will. So if there's something obscure, we don't like the Romans, the, the Romans, the Mormons do take a text that is obscure and, and confusing that talks about the baptism of the dead and make a whole doctrine off something that doesn't jive with the rest of the Bible's testimony on baptism. But that's what they do. They take that one passage and they... They baptize someone on behalf of dead people. And you might have some, someone get baptized five, ten times for Aunt Lucy and Uncle Steve that are, that are gone already up in heaven, wherever they are. They're hoping they're in heaven. Um, it's a very strange thing. So we, we want to interpret the Bible with the Bible. And where the Bible is unclear, we want to let the, clarity, the clearer text shine light. And then finally and lastly, paragraph 10, um, as it relates to controversies. The supreme judge. So if someone tells you, you don't want to have a confession because it's going to place itself over the Bible. It's going to, it's going to try to be the authority. Or the church is going to make it the authority and just throw out the word and always appeal to the confession. The confession itself says, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit into which Scripture so delivered our faith is finally resolved. So our final appeal is to the Word. Our final appeal is to the Word. Now I want to say, the, the, the confession as a, as, a, as a rule that is ruled by the Bible... If it rightly summarizes the Bible, it carries a measure of authority. We can say, well, the confession says this if it's rightly interpreting the text of Scripture, right? But ultimately, our, our judge is the Bible. We appeal to the Scriptures. If a creed, a confession, a, a council in history, whatever they said, if they said something that contradicted the Bible, then it's, 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 we throw it out, right? We say the creeds are authoritative because 
the church has agreed they rightly interpret for us the, fit, the basics of the faith. And so our final appeal is to the word, not to the confession, not to councils, but to the scriptures as our ultimate standard. And that's what we got. So anybody, any questions, comments, anything to add, helpful anecdotes? That he, he doesn't believe, he doesn't agree with New Testament priority. That the new, that, that when we interpret the Bible, the New Testament should be able to shine light and even it's going to help us see things rightly. For instance, when, when, when the Lord says in Jeremiah 31 that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, it seems that in that text he's making a promise it's only for Israel. But then in um, Hebrews chapter 8, the author there is talking about the excellency of Christ's ministry, and he quotes that text verbatim, speaking of the new covenant that Christ inaugurated What's that? Yeah. And so. So that text seems to say it's only for Israel. And so some would say you can't apply Jeremiah 31 to the new covenant because in the old covenant, it was only given to Israel and Judah. And we understand that God has grafted in the Gentiles, something that the Jews had no idea of and probably would have not. You know, they wouldn't have understood. They wouldn't, it wouldn't have made sense. Or the text about a new temple. They wouldn't understand that the incarnation of the Son would be the, the, the full and greater temple, right? All that it meant to point to, that Jesus embodies that. So there's things that the New Testament shines light on and gives us fuller revelation, as the Bible is progressive revelation. So it doesn't contradict the old, but it, it points to, it, it unveils what the old was really communicating all along or anticipating, if that makes sense. No, yeah, it's dispensationalism. Yes, yes, which is basic. Yeah, it's almost Old Testament priority, which is interesting because the Presbyterians have some likeness there with that, that how they how they do their theology. They do. No, they really do. That the old the old covenant, the things of the old covenant, they stand and have precedent, even when the new is different. They say no, they they just they carry over because. That's why we're Baptist, brother. That's why we're Baptist. <laughs> I mean, it's biblical, so, you know. No, but yeah, I think, I think the Baptists have better arguments. That, that they, they, they're more satisfying putting all the material together.